Following the 1922 Everest expedition and the tragic deaths of seven Sherpas in a late season avalanche, a guilt-ridden George Mallory embarked on a speaking tour across Britain and the eastern United States. His British tour the previous year had been a great success, but he struggled to find an audience in the U.S. This might have perhaps been because Mallory was not a household name in America, or it might have been due to a difference in British and American attitudes. The British tend to lionize men who fail in great endeavors. John Franklin, Ernest Shackleton, Robert Scott, to name a few. Rightly or wrongly, Americans tend to celebrate only those who succeed. In an interview during his American tour, a reporter asked Mallory why anyone would want to climb Everest. As with the moon landing, some doubted the value in spending a fortune and risking life for an achievement that was more symbolic than practical. The standard answer, the kind given by men on the Everest committee like Sir Francis Young husband, was that climbing Everest was a grand patriotic act that would inspire all mankind to attempt brave and noble deeds. But Mallory gave a much simpler answer, an answer that has echoed to this day. Because it's there. On the surface, this remark seems straightforward. The challenge exists, and any challenge inevitably invites challengers. But in his book, Everest, A Mountaineering History, Walt Unsworth has a different take on Mallory's famously enigmatic answer. He cites several instances in which Mallory used the word there not to refer to physical existence, but something grander. Unsworth writes, quote, Mallory seems to have acquired the habit of using the word there to indicate anything which had a mystical quality. To him, the word there seems to have gained an all-encompassing meaning for mystical feelings, which he could not put exactly into words. And this certainly applied to the climbing of Mount Everest, end quote. Perhaps what Mallory truly meant to say was that Everest, more than any place on earth, had a solidity and a presence which made the mundane world seem insubstantial by comparison. Everest was absolute reality, existing equally in the physical and transcendent realms, a kind of bridge between the two that he might cross if only he could reach the summit. My name is Megan. This is Death Zone. Episode 5, Propatria Mori. Welcome and thank you for listening. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the tragedy and heroism of history's most incredible disasters, from the highest mountains to the deepest seas, from ancient ruins to the cutting edge of scientific discovery. This is the fourth part of a six-part series about the early exploration of Mount Everest, beginning with the first measurements and finishing with George Mallory and Sandy Irvin's doomed attempt to reach the summit in 1924. In this episode, the third Everest expedition launches their final assault on the summit of Mount Everest, and one of history's greatest high-altitude explorers vanishes without a trace at the top of the world. If you have any questions, comments, or corrections, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at deathzonepodcast. Now let's begin. The 1922 expedition set new altitude records and proved the efficacy of bottled oxygen, but it was considered a tragedy and a failure. Mallory was blamed for the deaths of the seven Sherpas twice over, once for skirting the opinion of the expedition's medical officer who had deemed Mallory too sick to climb, and again for leading his team into dangerous snow conditions. 
Blame also fell on General Charles Bruce, the leader of the expedition. It was he, not Mallory, who had the final say on all summit attempts. Why had he allowed Mallory to make that third attempt? Blame even fell on the Everest Committee at home, which had been demanding impossible results from General Bruce, with no real knowledge of the conditions on the ground. Alas, this is the kind of finger-pointing and blame-shifting which always occurs after a mountaineering tragedy, even to this day. However, it's often not a single factor or a single decision made by a single person which results in a tragedy like the North Coal Avalanche of 1922. It's a long series of errors in judgment which compile and compound until one stroke of bad luck sends the entire shaky edifice crashing to the ground. But this was 1922. And, although indigenous people weren't seen as mere chattel, as they might have a hundred years previously, they were still dark-skinned foreigners. The British public merely shook their heads, said, oh, how dreadful, and then asked when the next expedition would take place. As it would happen, a year passed between expeditions this time. The Everest Committee had finally realized that a larger team of younger climbers would be needed, and this new team would take time to assemble and organize. The 1924 expedition would once again be led by General Bruce, although certain members of the Everest Committee had serious misgivings about his health. Teddy Norton, who had been on the climbing team in 1922, would be his second in command and leader of the climbing team. It was generally agreed that Mallory might be the most skilled climber, but he didn't have the temperament for leadership. Howard Somerville would return from the 1922 expedition, so would Jeffrey Bruce, the general's nephew, who had been support staff on the previous expedition but had acquitted himself so well teaming up with George Finch on his summit attempt that he was promoted to the climbing team. There were Tibetan porters and Sherpas returning as well, including the lead interpreter, a Christian convert called Karma Paul, and Galjen Kazi, the Sirdar or leader of the Sherpas. Likewise, the Nepalese Gurkha soldiers led by young Jeffrey Bruce would be returning to act as support staff, including Tejbir, who had climbed with Finch and Bruce. There was even a cook called Old Pooh making a third trip. These names may be little more than footnotes in the historical record, but the accomplishments made on Everest in the 1920s would not have been possible without them. John Knoll, the photographer and filmmaker, would return as well. His first film about Everest hadn't been a commercial or critical success, but he was determined to try again. Expedition Films, the company John Knoll helped establish to produce the film, funded the bulk of the 1924 expedition. It was the first, but far from the last time, an expedition to Everest would be funded by film rights or book deals. Today's expeditions solicit sponsorships as well. The cost of an expedition to Everest is so prohibitively expensive that climbers are often sponsored by companies who want the bragging rights of seeing their brand logo at the summit of the world. A few new climbers were added to the roster this time. Noel O'Dell, a climber and geologist who had recently been exploring the islands of the Arctic, and Bentley Beetham, a friend of Somerville with impressive experience climbing in the Alps. The Alpine Club also wanted to send an experienced Alpine climber named Richard Graham, but he was rejected by the climbing team because he was a Quaker pacifist and had been a conscientious objector during the war. His last-minute replacement was an outsider named John Devere Hazard. Lastly, the committee decided to invite along a relative unknown a 22-year-old named Andrew Irvin, called Sandy. Irvin had been with Odell in the Arctic and impressed the climber with his physical strength, endurance, and indefatigable good cheer. He was not an experienced technical climber, but he was not a green novice either. Certainly, he was more experienced than Jeffrey Bruce had been when Bruce set the world altitude record on his very first mountain climb. If anything, Bruce's success had demonstrated that endurance and determination counted for a lot more than technical ability on Everest's North Ridge. 
although no one had yet attempted the rock face called the second step, and only George Finch, excluded in 1924, had a sense of how difficult it might be. Irvin had another valuable quality. He was a mechanical genius who could fix anything, even with the limited tools available on Everest. Although Odell was nominally in charge of the oxygen systems, it was Irvin who would do the work. Irvin offered a less quantifiable contribution as well. He was 16 years old when the war ended, too young to have served, and may have reminded his older colleagues of their younger selves in more innocent times. The 1924 expedition set out from Darjeeling, India on March 25th for the month-long march through the sweltering jungles of Sikkim and into Tibet beyond. Soon after departure, the team discovered that their custom-made oxygen system was faulty and the bottles leaked. Fortunately, Sandy Irvin was able to make adjustments and correct the problem, and in doing so, he actually made the entire system five pounds lighter. The team ascended the mountain pass into Tibet, and soon the temperate lowlands rose to the dusty Tibetan plateau. After two expeditions, Mallory was well acquainted with the frigid wind which blew perpetually across the highlands. As always, illness was a constant problem at these high altitudes. Beetham suffered from dysentery. Mallory developed abdominal pain so severe that Dr. Richard Hingston, the team's new medical officer, thought he had appendicitis. Somerville, an army surgeon, even contemplated doing emergency surgery in the field. Fortunately, Mallory recovered. The one man who did not recover was General Bruce. His age and his deteriorating health had indeed caught up with him. He suffered recurring attacks of malaria he couldn't shake. Dr. Hingston decided the general needed to be sent back to Darjeeling as soon as possible, carried by porters across the bleak countryside. The doctor accompanied him, leaving the climber Somerville to care for Beetham and Mallory. Beetham recovered enough to carry on to Everest, but he wouldn't have a serious role in the climbing. With General Bruce out of commission, Norton became the expedition's commander. By all accounts, he performed admirably in his new role, but in being promoted to leader of the expedition, he had also demoted himself from head of the climbing team. The position now went to Mallory, the man no one wanted in that role in the first place, only because he lacked the kind of wide focus that made Bruce and Norton such capable leaders. Before reaching Everest, the expedition halted at Rongbuk Monastery, the remote Buddhist sanctuary in the shadow of Chomolungma. In previous years, the priest, called a lama, had performed the puja, the important ritual in which the climbers ask Chomolungma, the goddess mother of the world, for permission to climb, to bless them and protect them. Today, this ritual is still performed at base camp each season. But that year, the lama was too ill to perform the ceremony. The Tibetans were anxious about setting foot on the mountain without the goddess's favor. Some had been present in 1922 to witness how angry the devils of the snow might become. There was another ominous discovery at the monastery as well. The monastery walls were decorated with beautiful and vibrant murals, but a fresh mural attracted notice. This mural, according to David Roberts in The Lost Explorer, memorialized the 1922 avalanche disaster. He quotes Bentley Beetham, describing the mural as depicting, quote, the party being pitchforked down the mountainside by hoofed devils and sent spinning into the colder hell, end quote. Roberts also describes the Lama warning the party several weeks later against incurring the wrath of the spirits on the mountain by attempting to climb. But Wade Davis, in Into the Silence, suggests that the climbers likely got the wrong impression of what was represented in the mural. According to Davis, it depicted an event which took place after the 1922 expedition had left, when some Tibetans had attempted to recover abandoned supplies, despite the Lama's admonition not to. The men had been attacked by Yeti, the devils Bentley described, and forced to flee. 
The mural was not a warning against climbing, but the danger posed by the Yeti. The British climbers, of course, interpreted Buddhist belief through a Christian lens. The word devils meant something more like angry spirits than the infernal creatures from Dante. The spirits were powerful, but not as powerful as the benevolent Chumalungma herself. That was the whole point of the puja, to ask her to protect the climbers from those spirits. The expedition men mistakenly believed that the summit carried the same fascination for the Tibetans that it did for the British. Beetham, stumbling upon a hermitage near the Rongbuk Monastery, came closest to reconciling the two fundamentally distinct worldviews. He described the extreme conditions in which the hermits lived in order to achieve a kind of living sainthood, then added, quote, No doubt he regards our attempts to climb Mount Everest in much the same light as we look on his incarceration. Each to the other must seem futile and ridiculous, yet each in its own way earns merit, and each is no doubt of equal value, the gain being purely moral and spiritual and of little, if any, practical use, end quote. The Tibetans were far more interested in living in harmony with Chumalungma than standing on her head. The Sherpas in 1924 didn't even have a word for summit. But a job is a job, and then, as now, work was scarce in that part of the world. The expedition which arrived at the Rongbuk Glacier in late April 1924 was a motley group composed of Englishmen, Nepalese soldiers, Tibetan porters, and specially chosen Sherpas. The expedition leaders knew time was of the essence. They wanted to establish camps as quickly as possible, knowing that a wide climbing window would increase their chances of success. Mallory, Irvin, Odell, and Hazard would proceed immediately with 20 Sherpas to establish Camp 3 on the glacial moraine at the base of the North Pole. Today, this location is referred to as Advanced Base Camp. Once settled, they would establish Camp 4 on the North Pole itself. Noel would accompany them to film it all. Meanwhile, Somerville and Norton would establish Camp 2 alongside the East Rongbuk Glacier, which is called Interim Base Camp today. They would be supported by a team of 20 Sherpas as well. Jeffrey Bruce and the debilitated Bentley Beetham would remain at Camp 1 at the head of the Rongbuk Glacier, called simply Base Camp today. The original plan for the summit attempt was for two different teams to attempt the summit at two different times, one with oxygen, one without, as had been done in 1922. But Mallory proposed a new strategy. Instead of both teams leaving from Camp 5 on different days, he envisioned two teams leaving simultaneously from different camps. This would require constructing a seventh camp, which had never been attempted. Norton and Somerville would leave from Camp 7 without oxygen, while Mallory and Irvin left from Camp 6 using oxygen. If all went according to plan, both teams would reach the summit, and all four names would enter the history books. Of course, Everest had other plans. The first group of climbers, Sherpas and Gurkha soldiers, reached the base of the North Pole after a long day of trekking across the treacherous East Rongbuk Glacier to establish Camp 3. But poor planning had resulted in a shortage of food and bedding. Mallory trudged down to Camp 2, an eight-hour hike the next day, to ensure the necessary supplies were brought. But on the return trip to Camp 3 that afternoon, a blizzard broke over the East Rongbuk Glacier. The men could not transport their heavy loads in those conditions, so Mallory ordered them to drop their supplies and return to Camp 2. Mallory himself continued up to Camp 3, a nearly superhuman feat in itself. Despite Mallory's efforts, this combination of human error and bad weather meant that more than 20 men were virtually stranded at Camp 3 overnight, freezing and starving. When the weather cleared enough for them to hike down to Camp 2 the next day, the supplies which had been intended for Camp 3 needed to be used to feed and revive the battered men. 
Two days later, May 9th, another attempt was made to relieve the handful of men who had remained at Camp 3, including Irvin, Odell, Hazard, and a few Sherpas. Irvin, although he had acclimatized well and had stayed strong throughout the journey to the mountain, was suffering ongoing diarrhea. In 1924, altitude sickness was poorly understood. To a modern observer, it's unsurprising that the 4,000-foot increase in elevation, nearly a mile, from just Camp 1 to Camp 3, would ravage even a strong young man like Irvin. Once again, a blizzard pinned down the relief party. Mallory, Norton, and Jeffrey Bruce pushed onward with a small group of Sherpas who had been held in reserve and were still strong. The situation at Camp 3 was very grim. Bruce would write, quote, No one moved about the camp. It seemed utterly lifeless. The porters were wretched, and this terrible blizzard, coming immediately on top of their hardships of a few days ago, completely damped their spirits and energy, end quote. The forward relief party became stranded right along with those they were meant to relieve, and the entire party was forced to spend a miserable night with only the barest provisions as, quote, the blizzard continued with unabating violence. On May 13th, expedition leader Norton ordered a general retreat to Camp 1. The porters who had remained at Camp 3 were exhausted from nights spent in minus 20 degrees with only a single blanket per man. They were more fortunate than others. During the ordeal of the past five days, Somerville's assistant, Tamding, had broken his leg and others had developed bronchitis, even pneumonia. A Gurkha NCO named Shamsherpun formed a blood clot in his brain and an Indian shoemaker named Manbahadur suffered severe frostbite in his feet. Both men required surgeries that could not be performed in such spare conditions. Shamsherpun died while being carried back to Camp 1. Manbahadur lingered a little longer, then died as well. The Lama at Rongbuk Monastery had recovered from his illness, and the expedition leadership decided, for the sake of morale among the expedition's many Buddhist members, the entire contingent should return to the monastery on May 15th so a proper puja ceremony could be performed. This seemed to have the intended effect, not only psychologically, but in terms of improved weather. By May 20th, the team resumed the process of establishing Camp 4 on the lower shelf of the North Coal. Mallory, Noel Odell, Teddy Norton, and Sherpa Lakbutsaring carefully negotiated their way up the slopes, over the ledges, around the seracs, across the crevasses, and even through an ice chimney on the glacial wall, searching for safe routes which porters burdened by heavy loads could manage. Eventually, a makeshift rope ladder would serve to make the ice chimney accessible. After a heavy day's work, the four men were descending from the North Coal, when Mallory fell through the snow into a hidden crevasse. He survived only by chance. His ice axe became jammed between the crevasse's narrow walls, stopping his fall, but leaving him dangling by one hand with a fatal drop below. Mallory managed to wedge his body between the crevasse walls, only a slightly more stable position. He called out to his teammates, but no one came. He had to pull himself out or die trying. Fortunately, he had not fallen too deep and reached the surface. None of the other climbers had even noticed he was gone. But the next day, May 21st, the snows began. The snowfall continued through May 22nd and into May 23rd. John Devere Hazard, who had remained at Camp 4 with 12 Sherpas, had decided to evacuate the camp. Only eight of the Sherpas accompanied him down the face of the coal. Four remained behind, fearing an avalanche might take them as it had taken the seven Sherpas in 1922. Two of the stranded Sherpas were suffering frostbite and all were hungry. Hazard had left them tinned food to eat, but no can opener. After the tragic events of the last year, Mallory, Norton, and Somerville, all 1922 veterans, were determined that no Sherpas would be lost this time. They climbed the North Coal in the falling snow to help the four stranded men down. The three climbers returned to Camp 3 safely with the four stranded Sherpas. The effort took a serious toll on Somerville, who developed a nasty cough. 
Irvin remained at camp, too weak from diarrhea and dehydration to participate. Norton decided enough was enough. He ordered another general retreat to Camp 1. Considering the many setbacks the expedition had suffered, the men needed a new plan. The expedition decided that Mallory's proposal to send two teams simultaneously was infeasible given the reduced number of Sherpas available. Of all the 50 or so Sherpas who had begun the expedition, only 15 were strong enough to continue. These men were nicknamed Tigers, a fitting term which is still used to describe the mountaineering Sherpas to this day. The team also decided to abandon the oxygen equipment at Camp 3 rather than hauling it to Camp 4 in the North Cold. Camps 5 and 6 hadn't even been established yet, and the climbers thought it would be too heavy to lug up the Long North Ridge with so few Sherpas. The teams were also scrambled. Instead of Mallory and Irvin leading the first assault, it would be Mallory and Jeffrey Bruce. Irvin was suffering not only from diarrhea, but also from extremely painful sunburn and windburn. Bruce had been at lower altitude for most of the expedition and was currently the healthiest man on the team. The second pair would be expedition leader Teddy Norton and Howard Somerville, who still had a persistent cough. Noel O'Dell and Sandy Irvin would remain in reserve. Mallory and Bruce's attempt on June 1st was rather feeble. Seven Sherpas led by Georgie Pasang accompanied the climbers on the tedious slog up the steep north ridge, but four of them ran out of strength at 25,000 feet and had to retreat. The two climbers and the three remaining Sherpas endured another 300 feet of freezing wind to establish Camp 5 approximately 200 feet higher than it had been two years previous. But Bruce and the Sherpas had exhausted themselves carrying the dropped supplies of the other four Sherpas. On June 2nd, the attempt was abandoned, and the men returned to Camp 4 on the North Pole. Not only had they failed to reach the summit, they had also failed to establish Camp 6. Mallory was now convinced it would be impossible to reach the summit without supplementary oxygen. That same morning, Norton and Somerville embarked with six Sherpas, expecting to overnight at Camp 5, while Mallory and Bruce spent the night at Camp 6. The two teams crossed paths halfway up the North Ridge, one trudging steadily up, the other trudging wearily down. Norton and Somerville reached Camp 5 and spent the night. The next day, June 3rd, the Sherpas were in bad shape. A storm had dropped on Camp 5 during the night, and the force of the wind had sent stones falling on the Sherpa's tent, ripping holes. One of the Sherpas, Lobsang Tashi, suffered a cracked skull. He was sent down with two others, but the two British climbers were able to encourage three of the Sherpa, Norbu Yishi, Lakpachid, and Semchumbi, to continue. They established Camp 6 at 26,800 feet. Then the climbers sent the Sherpas down. Norton and Somerville spent the night trying to rest and rehydrate in a small canvas tent pitched on the northeast shoulder, higher than any human being had ever camped before. On June 4th, Norton and Somerville launched their summit attempt. Although Mallory had always favored the northeast ridge as the best route, Norton and Somerville chose a different route, hoping to avoid the two rock buttresses called the first and second steps. Instead, they opted for a horizontal traverse along the fractured ledges of the Yellow Band, a thick layer of metamorphic limestone below the Northeast Ridge. Imagine, if you will, that you need to cross from one side of a steeply pitched, tiled roof to another. You can walk along the peak, but the chimney blocks your path, and you'd have to free climb it to continue. You could walk along the slope of the roof, but you'd be balancing on a precarious angle. Now imagine the roofers didn't do a great job and the tiles might slip off at any moment. And you're wearing soccer cleats. That's the choice Norton and Somerville faced. Neither option was great, but they chose the second. They knew it was dangerous, but judged it more practical than scaling the second step. The pair crept along Everest's north face. They passed below the first and second steps, 
slowly and deliberately moving towards a geological feature called the Great Coolwar, a huge gully on Everest's high north face. They didn't even know whether it was possible to climb from the Great Coolwar to the summit pyramid, but they attempted it anyway. As it would turn out, it is possible to ascend by this route, bypassing the first and second steps altogether. But in the modern era of fixed ropes and fixed ladders, it is far more dangerous and difficult to do so. Beneath the second step, Somerville quit. His lungs couldn't take it anymore. Norton decided to continue solo, but he was having troubles of his own. He had removed his goggles and was developing double vision, an early indicator of snow blindness. Norton reached the Great Coolwar, which is also called the Norton Coolwar in his honor, but the uneven slabs of rock on which he maneuvered were smooth and steep. Here is Norton in his own words, quote, It was not exactly difficult going, but it was a dangerous place for a single unroped climber, as one slip would have sent me in all probability to the bottom of the mountain. The strain of climbing so carefully was beginning to tell, and I was getting exhausted. In addition, my eye trouble was getting worse and was by now a severe handicap. End quote. Norton was 900 feet below the summit, but he judiciously chose to retreat. He and Somerville gingerly retraced their steps back to the northeast shoulder. They decided to continue down the mountain together, choosing to return to the relative comfort of Camp 4 on the North Col. As they descended from Camp 5 to Camp 4 in the waning light, Somerville stopped. He was suddenly choking. Something was lodged in his throat, and he doubled over, coughed violently, trying to dislodge it. Norton was too far below him and didn't realize the danger Somerville was in. Finally, Somerville coughed so hard he ejected a bloody wad of something. Whatever it was, he could now breathe again, and he continued his laborious march down the North Ridge. What had happened was the mucous membranes of his larynx had become dislodged by days of coughing fits and had finally come detached. As gruesome as it sounds, it was not life-threatening. Norton's snow blindness was more serious. His condition progressed, and he would be rendered totally blind for the next several days. While Norton and Somerville had been making their attempt, Mallory had rallied enough Sherpas to transport the oxygen equipment from Camp 3 up the menacing North Coal Wall to Camp 4 above. He was determined to try again, this time with oxygen, as he originally intended. He chose Sandy Irvin to be his partner, also as he originally intended. Why Mallory chose Irvin instead of the more experienced Noel O'Dell is something of a mystery. In Everest, a mountaineering history, Walt Unsber suggests that Mallory might have been infatuated with Irvin. Although Mallory had had romantic relationships with other men when he was younger, he was now a happily married man with three children, and it's unlikely any attraction he might have felt to Irvin influenced his decision. In The Lost Explorer, David Roberts speculates that Mallory chose Irvin because Irvin had the greatest strength and endurance of any man on the team, and Mallory needed those qualities more than he needed technical ability. Irvin had the attitude Mallory needed too. He would do what he was told, when he was told, without questioning and without complaining. He also needed Irvin's thorough knowledge of the workings of the oxygen system in case any last minute adjustments needed to be made at camp. As for Odell, although he would be excluded from the summit attempt, he would play a pivotal role in the drama about to unfold. On June 6th, Mallory and Irvin left Camp 4 with eight Sherpas and began the wearying ascent of the North Ridge for the last time. They made Camp 5 and sent down four Sherpas with a note indicating everything was proceeding smoothly and the weather was fair. The next morning, June 7th, the two-year anniversary of the avalanche disaster, Mallory and Irvin climbed from Camp 5 on the North Ridge, passing over the snow line and entering the fields of jagged black rocks above, and reached Camp 6 on the northeast shoulder just shy of 27,000 feet. 
Mallory had accidentally left his compass behind. In the meantime, Noel Odell climbed with one Sherpa, following in his colleague's footsteps. As Odell arrived at Camp 5, Mallory and Irvin's remaining four Sherpas met him on the way down from Camp 6. They carried a note for Odell from Mallory. The note read, quote, We're awfully sorry to have left things in such a mess. Our Una cooker rolled down the slope at the last moment. Be sure of getting back at four tomorrow in time to evacuate before dark, as I hope to. In the tent, I must have left a compass. For the Lord's sake, rescue it. We are without. Two here on 90 atmospheres for two days. So we'll probably go on two cylinders. But it's a bloody load for climbing. Perfect weather for the job. Yours ever, G. Mallory. End quote. One detail seems a little ominous. Without a cooker at Camp 6, Mallory and Irvin could not melt snow for water, nor could they cook dinner or breakfast. Modern historians disagree about whether Mallory and Irvin expected to find a cooker at Camp 6. If not, they would push for the summit, hungry and dehydrated. The Sherpas had a second note, this one for John Knoll at Camp 4 on the North Pole. We'll discuss that note in the next episode. From this point on, the details of Mallory and Irvin's last days are hazy. Sometime on the night of June 7th, or on the morning of June 8th, Irvin tinkered with the oxygen systems. Whether to fix an existing problem or prevent a possible problem is unknown. It is also unknown what time they left camp on June 8th. Modern climbers depart for the summit in the middle of the night, but modern climbers are traveling well-established routes, guided by fixed ropes, escorted by experienced Sherpas, and wearing headlamps. The pair might possibly have left earlier than normal, since the morning ritual of melting snow and cooking breakfast was impossible without their cooker, but they couldn't have left earlier than sunrise, around 5.30 a.m. The men had flashlights, which they would have called torches, but Mallory left his behind. It's equally likely that their start was delayed by issues with the oxygen systems, which would explain Irvin's tinkering. Mallory and Irvin left their tiny tent, faces hidden behind goggles, masks and scarves, ice axes in their gloved hands, oxygen rigs strapped to their backs, and ascended through the boulder-strewn fields of the northeast shoulder. They scrambled through the exit cracks to the northeast ridge. Unlike Norton and Somerville, they would walk the ridge route toward the summit, not traverse below it. It must have been a triumphant moment for Mallory, who had been struggling to reach this point ever since he first identified the Northeast Ridge as the most viable route to the summit three years earlier. Mallory and Irvin soon arrived at the base of the first step, the first rock buttress they needed to scale to attain the summit. This is the farthest point the two men definitively reached on their summit attempt, according to the physical evidence. Beyond the base of the first step, the narrative relies upon eyewitness testimony and educated guesswork. The first step is a challenging climb, especially in the death zone, but was well within the scope of Mallory's ability as a rock climber. Whether it was within Irvin's is another question, although he likely could have achieved it with Mallory's guidance and assistance. Between the first and second steps is a narrow rock ridge. The snow here is not too deep because of the constant wind which assaults the Northeast Ridge, but the ridge itself is frightfully narrow. At last, Mallory and Irvin would have come to the terminal prow of the second step, a vertical wall of rotten rock. Here, modern climbers traverse below the second step to an entry point on the north face. Above the entry point, a nearly 100-foot rock formation rises, the last 40 feet of which are vertical, the most difficult obstacle on the standard northern route. 21st century climbers and historians have proposed that Mallory and Irvin might have bypassed the second step altogether by descending to the yellow band, then traversing horizontally as Norton and Somerville did, but this is speculation. 
Noel O'Dell was on the North Ridge by 8 a.m., ascending to Camp 6, hoping to catch a glimpse of the two climbers above him, but a layer of cloud obscured the Northeast Ridge. At one point, he took a break from climbing and puttered around above the snow line, looking for interesting rocks. He was a geologist, after all, and he made an interesting discovery, the first marine fossil found on the mountain. He found a crag near a small snowfield right along the death zone threshold and decided to climb it. Around 12.50 p.m., Odell was at the top of this crag when the clouds parted. Odell once again scanned the ridge for a sign of the two men. Several days later, Odell described seeing two figures. He wrote, quote, There was a sudden clearing of the atmosphere, and the entire summit ridge and final peak of Everest were unveiled. My eyes became fixed on one tiny black spot silhouetted on a small snow crest beneath a rock step in the ridge. The black spot moved. Another black spot became apparent and moved up the snow to join the other on the crest. The first then approached the great rock step and shortly emerged on top. The second did likewise. Then the whole fascinating vision vanished, enveloped in cloud once more. End quote. And that was the last time George Mallory and Sandy Irvin were seen alive. Odell was concerned about the lateness of the hour, thinking that even if the two men reached the summit, they would be descending in the dark. He was also concerned about the deteriorating weather conditions. The clouds which enveloped the climbers soon became a full-on snow squall. Despite the wind, Odell continued to Camp 6, where he found the scattered remnants of Irvin's tinkering. He stayed in the tent for about an hour until the storm abated, then climbed another 200 feet, where he called out to the pair, thinking they might be lost, hoping to guide them back. But the weather deteriorated once again, and the wind carried away his words. The hour was growing late, and Odell needed to descend to Camp 4 on the North Call, as Mallory had instructed in his note. That night, Odell and John Devere Hazard watched the top of the mountain for any sign of the climbers, light from Irvin's flashlight or from the magnesium flares they carried for emergency signaling. There was none. On June 9th, Odell returned to Camp 5 with two Sherpas, Nima Tumdrup and Mingma. He found no signs of the two lost climbers, although possibly they had returned to Camp 6 unnoticed after dark. Odell, by this time the only Englishman strong enough to climb, had arranged a signal with Noel, Hazard, and Norton. If he reached Camp 6 and there was no sign of Mallory or Irvin, he would lay out two sleeping bags in a cross formation. Hazard and Noel would relay the information to Camp 3 by a similar method. On June 10th, Odell sent the Sherpas down and climbed to Camp 6 alone, passing the crag from which he had spotted the men two days earlier. As he arrived at Camp 6, 26,800 feet above sea level, he must have felt terribly alone. Perhaps he hurried, hoping against hope that he might find one or both men. Perhaps he tarried, knowing what he was likely to find, knowing what it would mean. Odell opened the tent flaps. Everything was exactly how he had left it. Mallory and Irvin had never returned. It had been nearly 48 hours since they were last seen. If they hadn't returned by now, they never would. Still, he refused to accept the evident truth. He climbed another 200 feet and hollered their names, as he had done the night they vanished. There was no response. Odell later wrote, quote, The upper part of Everest must indeed be the remotest and least hospitable place on Earth, but at no time more emphatically and impressively so than when a darkened atmosphere hides its features and a gale races over its cruel face. And how and when more cruel could it ever seem than when balking one's every step to find one's friends, end quote. 
At last, the despondent Odell returned to Camp 6, dragged the two sleeping bags out of the tent, and fixed them to a snowy bluff. The men at Camp 4 on the North Coal received his signal, then in turn signaled Camp 3. At Camp 3, the blind Teddy Norton received the grim news. He had likely anticipated it, since he had been adamant in his orders that no one should risk his life or another's simply to confirm the inevitable. He sent a return signal, which was relayed to Odell at Camp 6, ordering him to return. The expedition of 1924 was ended, and, although no one knew it at the time, so too had ended the golden age of exploration. And that's where we will end for today. Mallory and Irvin might have been lost, but their legend was about to be born, and future generations of mountain climbers would be inspired to follow in their footsteps and others would make it their life's work to discover what happened in those final tragic hours. We'll meet some of those men and women in our next episode and join them as they make mountaineering history. If you have any thoughts or comments, please email me at deathzonepodcast at gmail.com and please follow me on Instagram at deathzonepodcast. Thanks for joining me and we'll see each other again soon.